Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Heavenly Father, I am just uh, grateful for the reminders we've had today of just remembering Jesus, remembering his death on the cross on our behalf, and through our worship, remembering Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all worthy of praise. I pray, God, that as we study your word today, that you would give us hearts and minds that are good soil, that you would prepare us for what you would have us to learn and to do in response to your word. All these things I pray in your name. Amen. So I was reflecting how we, as people, tend to put a lot of weight on things that come first and things that come last. Those very often are things that we remember very strongly. I was thinking about that with relation to the passage that we've been studying. So the last couple weeks we have been in John 17 where we've been looking at Jesus's prayer, his really his final prayer before he goes to the cross. I mean the setting for this starting in chapter 14 has been this time of extended time with Jesus and his kind of most intimate close disciples where he is teaching them and eventually in 17, praying for them in a context where he is just about to be betrayed, to be put on trial, and eventually crucified. I don't know, that gives a weight to this, I think. Although, yes, we know he is resurrected and had some time with his disciples afterwards. Nonetheless, these kind of final moments that Jesus had with his disciples, I think, carry a particular weight in terms of what was important to Jesus for him to teach and to pray about before he went to the cross. In these last couple weeks, we've seen a couple of things that were important to Jesus. He prayed um, about his glory, that his glory would be restored and that, that he would be glorified so that he could glorify the Father in the centrality of the glory of God to what he was doing. Last week, Stephen uh, preached on Jesus' prayers for his disciples that in verse 20 we're going to see is also for us. But this acknowledgement that Jesus has that I'm getting ready to go out of the world, but I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm asking that you actually keep them in the world, recognizing that that was going to be a place of hostility, a place where they, our, our faith was going to be opposed. And so we Jesus, see Jesus pray that they would be protected, that we would be protected. And that we would be sanctified, that God would be doing the ongoing work of making us more Christ-like. This was something else that was on Jesus' mind when he was getting ready to go to the cross. Today we're going to look at the last part of this prayer. So I'd like to read here John 17 verses 20 through 26 and see what were the things that Jesus cared about right before he went to the cross. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So here, first we see in verse 20 what Stephen talked about last week, that the things that Jesus had prayed previously for his disciples, he also is praying for us. That all of those things around praying for our sanctification, praying for our protection were, yes, for his immediate disciples, but also for us. But here there's a very central thing Jesus prays for. It's in verse 21, that they may all be one. What was on Jesus' mind here, he was praying for our unity. Praying that there would be a oneness, a unity among those that believe in him. And actually, it's a pretty remarkable oneness. What he says about it is that they are to be one as the Father and the Son are one. So when Jesus is talking about what our unity is supposed to look like, he points to the relationship inside the Godhead as the example of what that's supposed to be. That's pretty huge and a little bit mysterious as we're going to talk about what exactly does it mean to have a unity like that within the church. But what is clear is what is it supposed to accomplish? So you see in verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And his prayer is repeated in 22 and 23 in some additional detail. And he says in 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So here's what he says about the unity of the church. He says that what it's going to accomplish is that the world is going to be able to look in at that unity and they're going to see two things. They're going to see that Jesus was sent by the Father and they're going to see how great the love was that both the Father had for the Son and that he has for us. And that's what our unity is going to represent to the world. And I I just want to point out how much this ties in with two of the things we've been talking about. One being the call to prayer. We see here Jesus praying for the unity of the church. But two, how this ties in with gospel proclamation. Our theme for the year. What he's saying here is that a part of our gospel proclamation is supposed to be the unity of the church. Such that when people see the church, they're supposed to see that, yeah, Jesus was sent by him very obviously. And that, wow, the father really expressed love to the son and to us. Now, this immediately runs into a huge problem that I'm guessing all of you all see, which is, man, I don't see a whole lot of unity in the church at large. Right? We can see so many places where it seems like the church is disunified, both in the present and historically. I mean, race politics, nationality, music, yeah, 
whether we have carpet in the sanctuary or not. I mean, there's lots of things that there we could point to that there has been disunity in the church. So how do we deal with what Jesus is praying for here? Well, the way I'd like to approach it is I want to look going back to what he said, that our unity is supposed to look like the Father and the Son and their relationship together. So I want to go there first. Now, how is God one? That's a big question you can spend a semester on, or more if you wanted to. You can spend the rest of your life trying to figure that out. But I think there's three big picture things where you see God as being one. The first is relationally. He is relationally one. There is a deep and close relationship in the different persons of the Trinity. And you actually have seen it earlier in this prayer. You remember Stephen talked about all of the the giving that was taking place. So if you go back to verse 6 of his prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So we see that somehow mysteriously within the Godhead, there is between the persons of the Trinity these mutual giving relationships. There is a deep relational unity to God. So that's the first thing that we see as an aspect of the unity. The second one, and I'm going to teach you a 25-cent theological word to use at dinner parties now, okay? So this is ontological. Ontological is about studying being. It's like the very essence or being of a thing. And God has an ontological unity. There is a sense in which he is three persons in one in a way that is essential to who he is and what he is. And this is honestly the place where we bump up a little bit into the mystery of God because we do not fully understand how this works. But nonetheless, we can say with certainty, based on what we see in the scripture, that God is not three gods. He is one God in three persons, eternally. There is an objective reality to the unity of God that is a little bit of a mystery to us, but it is ontological in nature. There's something there that is just about who God is. The third thing is behavioral unity. And God always perfectly operates as one. And you see it throughout the scripture. You can see it in creation. You see the Father speaking the word, the Son, in, with the Spirit dwelling over the face of the waters. You see it in Jesus' baptism where you have the Father speaking and saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased with the Son being baptized, walking in the will of the Father with the presence of the Spirit there. These are some of the most visible places in Scripture where we see God acting as one in perfect unity, but it is throughout Scripture. God always acts as one. It's not like the Son's doing something and the Father's doing something and the Spirit's doing something and they're headed in different directions. No, they are always acting together. So there's a relational unity, there's an ontological unity, and a behavioral unity to God. Now, why is this helpful for us? Because I think the same can be said about the church. That there is a oneness that has been created in the church that is actually independent of how we act. 
It is there by virtue of what Jesus did on the cross. It is something that the Father has created that when we come to a saving faith in Jesus, there is a sense in which we come to dwell in Christ and him in us and we have the presence of the Holy Spirit and there is a joining of us with Christ. And I think that's why you see Jesus talking about this, this idea of us being in God and God being in us. There is a joining there that is just something that is true. And because of that, because we each individually are joined to Jesus, there is also then a joining that happens together that is just an objective reality. Regardless of how disunified we look on the outside, there is a truth to the fact that God has created something that is unified and one that is his church, that is his body. To use an analogy that's a little bit more maybe down to earth, think about family for a second. Right? Your family, there is something there that is created simply by virtue of either biology or adoption. Right? There is an objective reality to family. There is a there is a unity that you have with your family. Now, we all know that families don't always act particularly unified. Right? There can be real brokenness in the relationships with family. There can be a sense where people might look in and go, man, that family seems a little bit dysfunctional. But it doesn't change the fact that you're family. In fact, in some ways, that what's, what makes it most grieving is the fact that that bond is supposed to look a particular way. And when it doesn't, it's particularly grieving and sad. But one of the analogies that scripture uses for what happened when we come to Christ is that we have become part of the family of God. We have become part of a family such that there is a reality to that. There is a we are brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we like it or not, whether we like each other or not. This is something that Jesus has done. And it's there. It's it's ontological. It's part of our being now. It's who we are. And it's relational. We now have a relationship with other people who are also in Christ. And this is something that is true. And it's something that means that there is a unity here. And it's a unity that is visible to the world. The world can see that there has been a church throughout history. That God, generation after generation, as imperfect as it has looked, has nonetheless called people who believed and put their faith in him for salvation, who then came together as a people under his lordship. And that has been there. But we do have to deal with that other piece. That behavioral piece, because just like a dysfunctional family, we can look at the church sometimes and see a huge amount of disunity. And I actually think that's why Jesus is praying for unity here at the end of the prayer is because, yes, he's praying that 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 joining would happen in the people of God, but he's also I think recognizing the fact that the the visible part of that unity is going to be contested, is going to be broken, is going to be sometimes imperfectly lived out. He, in the previous section, has prayed for the protection of his disciples, has prayed for their sanctification. Now he's praying also for their unity because he knows that in this world of brokenness and sin, there are going to be times when his church does not look unified. So I think in this prayer, yes, it's something that is a call for us to pray for in terms of that we would see the greater unity of the church. 
but I think it's also we are called to strive for, something we are supposed to be trying to live out as a body together. Now, last year, we spent a lot of time talking about unity. We talked a lot about what are the things that can cause divisions among us. And so if you're wanting to kind of deep dive into this, there's some, there's some of the sermons online that you can go back to. But I was praying about for our church right now, what, what do we need to be focused on around unity? Because there's a lot of different ways we could talk about this. I think fundamentally pursuing unity looks like living out the one another's. Love one another, care for one another, forgive one another. But I think one of the biggest challenges that I see coming for our church around this is politics. I think in the next two years, this is going to be a challenge for our congregation to stay unified together in the midst of an atmosphere in which there is so much vilification and hatred in the political sphere. And so this is something I'm trying to get out ahead of a little bit. Because over the next two years, I mean, we all all know that it is already intense out there. That there is already a huge amount of division out there that is seeping into the church. And I think it's going to get more intense over the next two years. I don't see any reason it wouldn't. I think we are going to continue to see an attempt to convince us that one side of the political aisle is going to single-handedly destroy the planet and the other side is going to single-handedly bring us to some sort of magical land where everyone gets a unicorn, right? Like that, I think, is coming. And so in the midst of that, I want to remind us what this means. That we are one people. Later on, Paul is going to talk about this idea of that our citizenship is in heaven. Peter is going to talk about that we are now a holy nation and a chosen people and a people set apart. As we enter into this season where there's a lot of political division, I want to invite you to remember that first and foremost, our allegiance is to Jesus. And the most important thing is about the fact that you are joined with him and your brother or sister or Christ is also joined with him, which means when you're having political discussion and even debate with them, that has to be forefront in the ways that we interact with one another. And I also want to really invite you to consider if there are things that are causing division in your own heart. There is a lot of things you can listen to and hear that will breed fear and dissension and distrust. And if you put yourself on a steady diet of fear and dissension and distrust, you will get a fruit of fear and dissension and distrust. So I would invite you as a part of what it looks like to pursue unity as a body around this would be to be very careful about what you are feeding yourself to make sure that you are feeding yourself the word of God and that you are also not feeding yourself things that are breeding fear and hatred. And I'll just say there are 
There are ways you can get news. There are ways you can get information. There are ways you can learn that do not do that. So again, this is but one application of what it means to be a unified people, but it is something that I want us as a congregation to be on guard about in the coming years because it is something where if we let it, it can divide us. And this is important because this is going to affect our witness. Right? This is what Jesus says. Is Yes, there is an objective reality to the fact that we are unified, that the world sees. But there's also an opportunity here. Because if our unity is telling a story about the fact that the Father sent the Son and that the Father loves us and loves the Son, then what that means is the more that we can press into that unity, the better we are telling that story. So if we as a congregation are going to be excellent at doing gospel proclamation in the world, one of the ways that we do that is by pursuing unity together. After praying for unity, uh, Jesus has one more thing he prays for. It's in verse 22 through 26. It says, The glory that I have given me I have given to them that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is a beautiful prayer. In the moments before Jesus went to the cross, what he prayed for is that we would get to be with him and see him in his glory. And I think that has two parts. There's an aspect of it that we get to see and participate now. But I also think that this is Jesus praying for what is to come. That moment when we will finally get to see him fully. When we will be there face to face. When his glory will not be something that is veiled but something that is fully before us. And this is what Jesus longed for. What he wanted was us. That's what he was after. That's why he was here. And when he was getting ready to go to the cross, what he prayed for is, I want them with me. What a thing and a hopeful thing to pray for. It's something I want to invite you to very explicitly pray for. Father, I want to see Jesus in his glory. When things get really hard this week, Father, I want to see Jesus in his glory. When you're tempted to make this world your home, Father, I want to see Jesus in his glory. This is something that Jesus prayed for us, and I think we should continue to pray because, boy, I want this to be at the center of my heart. I want to see Jesus in his glory. What a place to put our hope. What a place to put our expectation. And what a place also to put our hope and expectation in a way that builds unity, that we are all mutually looking forward to and expecting this together. So I want to invite you to three things out of this. The first is to begin regularly praying for the unity of the church. 
Yes, the unity of the church in general, but I would really invite you also to pray for the unity of this congregation. This is something that we certainly strive at as a church, but also we are going to absolutely need the Father's help in this and his Father's leading and guidance and his work in us to maintain the unity of the faith through everything that's to come. The second is that we would pray to see Jesus in his glory, that we would echo this with anticipation. And the last is that we would give firm consideration about how to live together in unity. And when we do encounter these differences that are among us, politics or whatever it is, that we would first and foremost look to the fact that we are joined to Christ and that they are joined to Christ and that is the absolute most important thing that can be said about them and us and that we would build from there and not build from hatred or fear. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray, God, for the unity of your church. We pray for the unity of our church. Pray that you would preserve it, God, through um, the many schemes of the enemy, that you would preserve it through the pressures of, of, of culture and opinions and just our own brokenness and sin, Father. We pray for the unity of the church in America. Pray that it would come to reflect more of Christ-likeness. We pray for the unity of the church in the world, God. I pray that you will help us to see our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world as our brothers and sisters. And Lord, I pray that we would see you in your glory. Pray that we would anticipate that and we would let that serve as our hope. All these things we pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.